Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Mother's Day. I'm Debbie Manning, and I'm on staff here, and I get to work as part of the congregational care team. Right now, we're in the middle of a series on faith and doubt. Matt Moberg kicked it off a few weeks ago with a conversation around how we hold faith and doubt together. And as Christians, often we feel like that it's not okay to doubt. But we've come to this realization that strength of faith can't be defined by how much doubt we do or don't have. That our faith is centered in Jesus Christ and not in our own understanding or our own knowledge. And when we walk authentically with God, we may have doubts. And then last week, Carrie Gleason did a great job talking about wrestling with doubt. We heard the story about Jacob in his wrestling match with God and his commitment to figuring out doubt. And what I loved most about Carrie's message last week is that we saw that God met Jacob right where he is, in the middle of the mess. But today we're looking at the idea that we're not alone in our doubt. And I've been thinking a lot about those that we see as faithful, the heroes of the faith, both ancient biblical and modern day, and how the faithful have struggled with this idea of faith and doubt, how they've struggled with their share of doubt. And many great people, people committed to God's mission in the world, have had hard times, times where they've experienced this dark night of the soul, getting caught in uncertainty, doubt, desperation, And we can look at our biblical forefathers and mothers and we can see that they too, just like us, wrestled with doubt. They had situations and seasons and moments where they suffered and despaired, questioned and felt abandoned by God. Abraham and Sarah, Moses, Jacob, Job, Hannah, David, Jeremiah, Elijah, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the Apostle Paul, John the Baptist, even the disciples. That's just to name a few. And then we can look, take a look at the men and women of faith that we see today. Pastors, biblical scholars, writers, crazy awesome Jesus followers. And we hear from them that in the midst of their faith, they experience uncertainty and even spiritual darkness. John Calvin and Karl Barth and Diedrich Bonhoeffer, C.S. Lewis, Madeline Langle, Maya Angelou, Rob Bell, John Ortberg, Mother Teresa, Greg Boyd, Rachel Held Evans. The list goes on and on, and we can add our name to those lists. We're people of faith, and we struggle with the presence of evil in the world, with our brokenness, And sometimes what seems like the silence of God. We share some of the same questions, some of the same doubts. And this fact should encourage us all. We're human beings and sinners and followers of God who struggle. But like those before us and those that stand with us now, in the midst of faith, we have doubt And I've realized two things. One is that we are not alone in our doubt. We're in very good company. 
And two, God continues to do his work in the world despite us messy, broken doubters. And I think John the Baptist exemplifies this well for us as we look at the book of Luke. We get a good picture of a faithful doubter. Earlier in the book of Luke, we see Jesus' cousin, John, preaching and baptizing and drawing huge crowds to his ministry in the desert around the Jordan River. John the Baptist preaches the coming arrival of God's salvation, just as Isaiah had promised. And for most of the ancient Jews of that time, they would have known John as the one sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. Jesus himself was baptized by John. And we see that earlier in the book of Luke. And then he began his own ministry. But unfortunately for John, after telling King Herod that it was unlawful for him to marry his, wife's, his brother's wife, John's thrown in prison. And while in prison, he hears these stories of this Jesus and what he's doing. And he sends two of his disciples to check it out. And that's where we pick up the story. So Luke chapter 7, 20 through 28. John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. And then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And tell him, God blesses those who do not turn away from me. After John's disciples left, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No. People who wear beautiful clothes and live in luxury are found in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes, and he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. And I tell you, of all who have ever, ever lived, none is greater than John. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. While John the Baptist is in prison, he sends two of his disciples to Jesus, and he's got a couple questions for him. And on the surface, at least, wouldn't this seem like kind of an unnerving question to ask the Son of God? Are you truly the Messiah? Because if you're not, we may as well follow the rabbi down the road. But John's question indicates his doubt as to whether Jesus was the mightier one coming that he himself had predicted earlier in Luke. Jesus didn't seem to be exactly the kind of Messiah that John had been expecting. And perhaps it was because it didn't appear that Jesus was about to overcome throw the Roman Empire, and probably because Jesus was not immediately bringing judgment upon evildoers. And who knows? 
Maybe being in prison for the last six to eight months had aggravated John's uncertainty. But the news that John had received was incomplete. It was unexpected. And that's where his doubt came from. But it's not just the question itself that's so important. It's who asked it that we need to really take a look at. Because if it had come from someone else in the crowd, Luke's audience would have dismissed it as, hey, they lack faith. But what turns, in, what turns it into such a big deal is that it was John the Baptist who asked the question. God's chosen forerunner for Jesus. I'd say we're in good company. But was John's questioning and doubting a reflection of a faltering faith? And Jesus' immediate response reassures us that this isn't the case. John's doubts were natural, and Jesus didn't rebuke him. He didn't tell John to shape up or ship out. He didn't say, hey, live up to your reputation. He didn't quote scripture or remind him on his chosen position as the one sent by God to prepare the way. Instead, Jesus responded in a way that John would understand. He responded. He explained who he was through action. In front of John's messengers, he cured a number of suffering people. The precise miracles that had been prophesied in Isaiah the miracles that were to be done when the Messiah came. He then told them, go tell John what they'd seen and heard. And I would imagine that would be pretty convincing. But there's more to this story. Notice a second development. As the two visitors left, Jesus addressed the crowd concerning John. He asked them if when they went out into the wilderness to see John, they had expected to see someone who was easily shaken by the wind? Or had they expected to see a weakling in soft, comfortable clothing? Then Jesus told his listeners that John was not only a prophet, but he proclaimed that no greater man had ever been born. And what makes this even more incredible is that John hadn't even received Jesus' message yet. He'd never witnessed Jesus' ministry And so here we have Jesus holding John up, complimenting him, while John's doubting. And I think we can take that as encouragement. Hang in there. Don't give up. You're not alone. John the Baptist shows us what it means to be people of faith. We can be all in living passionately for Christ, and be like our brothers and sisters, fellow doubters. Because what's important for us is that we have a solid center in Christ. What's essential is our relationship with Jesus. And in talking about people with a Christ-centered faith, Greg Boyd says this in his book, Benefit of the Doubt. We allow space for people to disagree, to doubt, to be in process. And it's in being those kind of people, this kind of community, that we can know that we're not alone. 
But for me, this conversation isn't complete without the understanding that God continues to work through us, in us, and despite us, faithful doubters. And he does that through the work of his Holy Spirit. Because through that, ultimately, we're never alone. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. The 11, then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So right before Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, he gathers his disciples, the guys that had followed him for three and a half years around the countryside, watching him teach and preach and do miracles and heal people. They saw him crucified and resurrected. And yet we're told that some of them doubted And yet knowing that there were doubters among them, Jesus calls them to go out into the world and to make disciples of all nations. John Ortberg in his book, No Doubt, says this. Then Jesus gives the disciples what is called the Great Commission. He sends sends them out to be his agents in the world. And Jesus looks at these worshiping doubters and he says... You go, you doubters go, you risk your lives for me, you change your world for me, and you will find as you go that it's your own doubts that are healed. You doubters are included too. So surely we are not alone. Just like John the Baptist, just like the disciples, just like so many other heroes of the faith, both ancient, biblical, and modern, we hold together faith and doubt. And I think the most amazing part of all of that is that God continues to do his work in the world anyway. The promise that Jesus made to those doubting disciples, he makes to you and I today. And we can lean into that truth. No matter how hard the times of spiritual darkness and doubt in our lives might be, we are not alone. Like Ortberg says, as followers of Jesus, we doubt and worship, doubt and serve, doubt and help each other with our doubts. We doubt and practice faithfulness. We doubt and wait for our doubt one day to be turned to knowing. When I think of the faithful who have really wrestled with doubt, I think about Mother Teresa. And in the fall of 2007, a published collection of her private letters revealed this woman of faith, this world-renowned servant of the poorest of the poor, suffered from intense spiritual darkness most of her life. Take a look. The best known... uh sort of contemporary saint. People called her a living saint even when she was alive. But I think there's a very unusual part of Mother Teresa's life that is not very well known. 
And that is, after the train ride, um, after this train ride to Jarjeeling, when she felt very close to God, she had this great spiritual darkness that lasted, some say, for the rest of her life. To her spiritual director, she wrote, In my soul, I feel that terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not existing. With time, she started to understand, with the help of her spiritual director, that these feelings of abandonment were one way of identifying with the figure of Christ on the cross and the abandoned poor. And so she transformed that darkness into a way of serving others. And isn't that the way it is in our lives a lot? We have this very intense experience of God, this very intense spiritual experience that sometimes leaves us. And it's the part of faith that we really have to um, live out. Uh, it's not as if we're always feeling close to God, and Mother Teresa wasn't feeling close to God either every day. And I think her life is a lot more like our lives than we think uh, that it was. work that uh, the Missionaries of Charity do uh, and that I was helping to do, um, which was my work was bathing old men and clipping their toenails, is, you know, can be very physically difficult to do, and I found it difficult to do. But it was wonderful for me to see the way that they approached each person, uh, not as just another sick person, but as someone who was beautiful, someone who deserved the dignity that God gives us all. And Mother Teresa has this wonderful expression where she says, it's important to meet Christ in his most distressing disguise. So not just Christ in a beautiful cathedral when the priest holds up the Eucharist and the organ is uh, playing and everybody's singing. It's easy to find Christ in there. Or when you're holding a, a newborn baby or when you're looking at a sunset. But when you're looking at a poor, uh, dirty, smelly street person who's dying of throat cancer, that's one man I took care of. And to be able to see Christ in that person think is very beautiful. And I think in that way, Mother Teresa gives us all a gift because she reminds us that it's not just finding God in the beautiful, but it's also finding God in his distressing disguise. Mother Teresa says to us, it's okay to doubt. It's okay to feel separated from God. But she also shows us that the part of faith is continuing on with the Christian call and continuing on with our work, no matter how difficult or how separated from God that we might feel. It's a hard message, but I think it's ultimately a very inspiring one from Mother Teresa. Together we will do something beautiful for God. I think what's encouraging and Mother Teresa's story for us is that even through incredible spiritual darkness, God continued to do his work in the world. And despite her doubt, she continued to follow Jesus, loving God and loving others. We are not alone. God promises that he's with us always. We're in good company, the company of those faithful that have come before us and those that stand with us now. And we have each other. This community of people, 
And I was reminded of that in a powerful way last Sunday night at the table. Carrie gave her message on wrestling with God. And during the communion and the music, we invited people to come up and on two big chalkboards that we had on the stage to write their doubts, their questions, their wrestling. And as I looked at those words, heard parts of their stories, heard the cries of their hearts, God, where are you? I feel so alone. I feel worthless. I don't belong. I need forgiveness. I'm lost. I'm lonely. When I prayed over those boards, I was overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by a God that loves us so much that he designed us to do this together. So what's certain for us is that in matters of faith and doubt, we're never alone. Let's pray. Holy God, uh, we just thank you, Lord, that you are a God who loves us so much that you give us space to doubt, that we can be faithful followers and at the same time struggle with questions, darkness, uncertainty, and you love us anyway. So we thank you, God, for who you are and how you call us to live out that love in this world. And we're reminded over and over again, God, of your promise that we are never alone. Amen.